All right, let's turn to Psalm number one. The song we just sang the first two verses of. And we've come uh, to the last class in this series of classes on making wise choices. In the first week, we saw that um, God is sovereign over all the details of life. We looked at Solomon and how he considered life apart from God and didn't make sense. It was meaningless and vanity and um, enigmatic. And then when he considered God in his proper place, everything made sense. Everything was purposeful in its time when when viewed from God's perspective. And that's how, how we ought to view life. The second week, we think we thought about what God's will is for our life. Our, God's will is for our redemption, our final redemption, that we would be made holy, eternally holy, in the presence of God forevermore. And the third week, we spent time thinking about how God speaks to us, and the primary way that He speaks to us is through His Son, and the way that He's revealed His Son to us is in His Word, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit more this morning as well, um, that the Spirit transforms us as believers through the Word of God, um, and, and in the Word of God, we, we have the Son being explained. Then in the next couple of weeks, we looked at how to listen to God's Son in matters of righteousness and wisdom. So how is it that we go from trying to make a choice to actually making the choice? And we said that well, we need to first find out what we know is true about God, what He He prohibits and what He requires of us, and then start looking at matters of wisdom and all along be praying and asking God's wisdom in, in the matter, and then we make a choice. Last week, we used an example of looking for a job to try to work through this, this process, which is pray all along through the process, but certainly begin by praying, seek God's Word, so let's listen for an answer from God in His Word, and then thirdly, seek wise counsel, and then finally, um, we make a choice. And um, This week, we want to turn to... Psalm 1 and consider how the Bible pulls all these ideas together. And so we're going to see the author's high view of Scripture and how the Scriptures are sufficient for everything that we need in life and godliness. So do you have any questions on anything that we've looked at so far before we get into today's study? All right, let's pray. And uh, if you have any questions along the way, we'll certainly try to answer them. Lord, thank you for uh, the opportunity for us to give ourselves fully to you in, in um, seeking out your desires for our lives. Lord, we can't know all your ways. Your, your ways are higher than ours. But we can know you and know your desires to the extent that you've revealed yourself to us. And so we're thankful for your word, thankful for how your spirit illumines our minds and helps us to understand it and to grow in it. And we pray that you would help us now as we look at this first psalm to uh, consider what, what it looks like to live a life that is happy, that is blessed. And we pray for your help in that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question we want to ask today is, does the psalmist have anything to say about guidance? And this psalm is put here, I think, purposely at the beginning of the psalms to introduce all the psalms because the psalms are filled not with just with prayers, how, um, instruction on how we can pray to God, but also uh, full of wisdom. And so um, I think uh, the psalmist purposely puts that there 
for, for our benefit. The first word of this psalm in the original is translated, how blessed. Um, it's translated into two words in our text, but, but the first word of the entire book really is the word blessed. It can be translated as happy. And so we see that this psalm and the rest of the psalms are concerned with how to live the blessed or the happy life. And isn't that what we want, right? Isn't that helpful for us that, that we can know how to live a blessed and happy life? Blaise Pascal was right when he said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception, right? Paul says it this way, no man has ever hated himself. He's only nourished and cherished himself. So he, Blaise Pascal goes on to say, whatever different means they employ to find happiness, they all, ten, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. That, that people are seeking happiness, aren't they? And um, even when they do terrible acts to themselves, like that's actually causing pain, they're, they're usually fleeing from some other kind of pain, right? Maybe an emotional kind of pain. Or even in, in suicide, they're, seeking, they're, they're thinking that it would be better for them if they were to die than to live. Otherwise, they would continue to live. So, we do this as well. And we are made to, to desire blessedness or happiness. And, and um, this way, this psalm helps us to see how God defines happiness and what, it, what actually brings true happiness. Because there's lots of ways that we can find happiness, but not all of them are, are um, fulfilling ultimately, and not all of them are prescribed or allowed by God. And so let's see what God has to say about a happy life. And the first verse tells us where the happy life is not found. Where the happy life is not found. It's not found in the counsel of the wicked. Right, The blessed man is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. So he stays away from the counsel or the advice of ungodly and wicked men. Consider the course of this fallen world, right? We, we have a society that with its implicit and often explicit, explicit messages, they are constantly offering advice to us, right? You, you can just drive down the, the highway and see billboards. They're offering advice for how you can find happiness, whether it be, you know, getting a lawyer to help you with this, you know, the situation where you were wronged or or um, some kind of product that, that makes you feel better, right? Or turn on the TV and watch the commercials there or, or, or the shows or whatever, read the newspapers. Um, you'll find that, that our society is trying to tell us what will make us most happy. And obviously there are a lot of social misconceptions that are, that are, um, are given to us, and so we have to make sure that we are being renewed by the Spirit in the spirit of our mind, right? We're being transformed in the renewing of our minds. And, um, and that happens as we, conf uh, we are not conformed to the pattern of this world, but rather we submit ourselves to the Scriptures. So, he does not find his counsel or his wisdom from the world, from the society. Rather, notice how he does find it. Um, it's, it's really... Uh, this this happy man is the one who well we'll get to it in verse 
too, that he finds his delight in the law of the Lord. But before we get there, just notice the progression here in verse 1. First he walks in the council, then he stands in the path, and then he sits in the seat of the scoffers. So from one level of rebellion to the next, the sinner becomes more and more solidified in his sin. Right? He becomes more comfortable with it. First he's just kind of walking by it. The next thing you know, he's standing around. And then, and, and then finally he's, he's sitting there feeling comfortable in the presence of sinners. <clears throat> and so um, I would suggest that taking counsel from the world impedes our ability to discern. And this is what we're trying to driving at in this class, right? How do we make wise choices? Well, here's how we avoid making terrible choices. We stay away from, from the, the pathway of sinners. We don't allow ourselves to be, um, to be taught by the world. And, and, and we, we have to guard ourselves in this because this is not something that we, um, you know, it's not like we go and take a class from a class on Satan and how to please Satan, right? No one does that. But it's, it's constantly, we're, we're constantly being bombarded from our society, whether it be just from our friend or family member who's, who's telling us something that's not in conformity to the Scriptures and we're buying into it. Right? It happens so easily, so quickly, and we just have to, to recognize that it's there and recognize the course correct that we need. So, the blessed man does not walk, stand, or sit among the ungodly, the sinners, and the scornful. Verse 2 begins with the word, but. Right? Here's the opposite of the actions of verse 1. Verse 1 tells us how we can lose happiness by going down the paths of sin. And now, here's the positive affirmation of how the blessed man does become happy. And how does he become happy, according to the text? He delights in the law of the Lord. So, what does this mean? Well, surely it means a lot more than that he gives mental assent to the law of the Lord. Do you agree that the law of the Lord is good? Yes, I do. It's more than that, right? Um it's rather that he takes delight in that. Did you notice that in the text? He actually takes pleasure in the law of the Lord. He enjoys it. Isn't this similar to what we saw in Titus chapter 2, verse 14? That, that God has transformed us to make us zealous for good deeds. It's not just that we have to do good deeds like, you know, like we're, we're, we're bound and we have to follow behind and we, we don't like this. It's not that. It's actually that we're zealous to do it. We want to do good, Right? We take pleasure in it. Or as the Psalm, Psalm 19 says, uh, the law of the Lord is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It's more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Right? He has a longing for it. In short, he actually loves it. And so this is what happiness looks like. It's someone who actually takes pleasure in God's law. So what is this law? I mean, is it the Ten Commandments? Is it that we take pleasure in the Ten Commandments? Well, I think that's part of it how about the books of moses because we call you know the law of the lord or the torah of god the first five books of the of the bible the the law of moses and i think that's part of it as well but this word i think has a a larger meaning than that or a broader semantic range than that that it means more than law it actually can be translated as instruction or direction or we could even say guidance that we take pleasure in the guidance of God, the law of God, that is His Word, as it instructs us and informs us what, who is God, who are we, who are we in relationship to God, what is sin, what, what is a wise choice, and how do we make those? 
right? We take pleasure in that. And so I would suggest that, that by implication that this man delights not just in the Ten Commandments or not just in the first five books of the Bible, but that he, had, he delights in the entire Word of God. Everything that God has said, he takes delight in. And so obviously he's going to want to practice it. Um, so I, I mentioned uh, earlier that <clears throat> Jesus is Jesus is revealed to us in the Word, right? The, the way that we know Jesus is not by, you know, just kind of making up ideas or, or just learning from what we've always known or something like that. But, but rather, we learn who Jesus is in the Scriptures. In fact, when Jesus came to the earth, right, what was one of the names that was given to him in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. And, and he was there at creation, and nothing is made without him making it. And then later on in chap, chapter 1, verse 14, I think it is, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have beheld his glory. Right, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And so now we know who that Word is. Right, We're not just making this up that in the beginning was the Word. Well, that would be a good place to insert Jesus' name. No, John explains later who that Word is. It's the Word who actually became flesh. It's God in human form. It's the best representation of God the Father that we have. It's Jesus. And so when we say that we love the Word of God, we're um, we're, we're actually talking about in general, we're talking about the Bible, but really the Bible is Jesus explained to us. It's His life given to us in written form. And so now we can know who He is and what, and, um, and what He desires. And so when we delight above all else, we ought to delight in Christ and what He's done. Notice um, this... Torah or this instruction, this law, is not just any instruction. It's the law of the Lord. It's God's law. And so what we can learn from that is that there is nothing higher than delighting in God's law. Right? There's no one higher than God. God is the supreme being in all the universe, and so his wisdom is supreme to all. And so when we look for wisdom, we have to look no farther than where God's wisdom resides which in this era, it's in his word. That is his written word in, in the Bible. Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. In other words, no one can refute God's law, God's word. He is the supreme being, the supreme teacher. Now, what do you suppose the reaction is of a man who has found the Word of God and has come to love it, to delight in it. What, is, what do you suppose that his response to that is? If he treasures that Word, if he loves it, what's he going to do with it? Yeah, he's going to walk in it. Look at the next line. And in his law, he meditates on it day and night. You see, the blessed man, the happy man, is one who not just takes and says, you know, writes, I love the notes to the Bible or something like that. Right? He actually takes pleasure in it and meditates on it. How can I understand the Scriptures more for myself and apply them to my situation? Right? It's not, a, it's not a, a, a distant, ancient document that I kind of just set aside and is of no value to me, but rather it is, it is my life. 
right? Um, Jesus said, in quoting Moses from Deuteronomy, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, right? We can have meaningful life without food, right? As hard as that is to believe. We could actually live for a long time without food and still have a meaningful life. And we could actually die of starvation and still have a meaningful life that whole time we're alive. But we cannot have a meaningful existence apart from God's Word, can we? We cannot live without God's Word. And so we delight in it. We meditate on it day and night. It's not just a casual read, hurry up, quick five minutes, get this done so I can check off my box. But rather the blessed man, the happy man, is one who's, who's chewing on it, who's meditating on it, turning over the Word of God in his mind and digesting it, internalizing How does this apply to this area of my life? What about this area? So meditate is a good translation there for a word um, that we use to convey to the kind of thinking that, that requires us to engage our minds. Now, in our culture, meditate sometimes can mean emptying the mind. That's not what the text means. Okay, We, we actually mean fill it up. That's what I think the, um, the text of Scripture means, to fill up our mind with truth. That's what meditating means. It's, it requires strenuous labor on our part often. Um, and if you just read some of the writings of the Puritans, you find that that's exactly what they do. You know, they, they, they strenuously labor over the text of Scripture and try to consider how it is I can apply this to my situation. And how often does this meditation take place, according to verse 2? Day and night. So, does that mean in the morning and in the evening and no time in between? No, it's, it's, I think it's probably another mirrorism that Solomon used in Ecclesiastes, remember? You know, there's a time to be born and a time to die. What he's saying there is not that there's a time to do either one, but he's saying between those two things, birth and death, God is in charge of them all, right? There, there's a time to, to laugh and a time to cry, right? There's a time to mourn and there's time to have joy. And so between those two things, those are the two extremes of life, God is in control of all those things in between. I think the psalmist is saying something very similar. He's using the same kind of um, uh, Hebrew um, uh, word form, a mirrorism, that is between day and night we are supposed to be meditating on it, right? consistent with what Joshua told the people just before entering into the promised land. Right? That, that if you want to make your way prosperous and you want to have good success, then you need to meditate on the Word of God. God's Word is most important. It's not about military skill here, guys, when we go over into Canaan. It's not about uh, experience. It's not about um, being able to handle our weapons the best. No, it's just about listening to God. And what is, what is the very first battle that they engage in? The Battle of Jericho. And how do they destroy the walls of Jericho? Amazing military skill? No, it's just by simply obeying God to the T. Okay, God says walk around the city. We're going to walk around the city. When God says, says to shout, we're going to shout. doesn't require a whole lot of skill. It actually just requires us to submit ourselves to God. And, and so that's the type of... Um, that's, that's, that's what really brings good success, is meditating on the Scriptures from day to night and everything in between. All right, so the happy life is not found by 
hanging out with sinners and listening to their counsel, but it is found by delighting in the Word of God and meditating on it day and night. Any questions so far? Comments? All right, verse number 3. We see the result of this fleeing from sin in verse 1 and the result of finding refuge in the law of God. And it simply is a fruitful life. It is what Joshua talked about and that, that is success. It's a life that's free from anxiety and wondering, you know, uh-oh, did I miss the will of God or am I in the center of God's will? No, when we meditate on the law of God, when we focus on it day and night, then we have stability like this tree that's pictured here in verse 3. Let's read the Actually, would someone read verse 3 for us? Okay, so there's strength here, isn't there? The picture here for us to help us see what value there is and delighting in the law of God is that we are like a tree that's planted by streams of water so that when there's drought, uh, it's okay because there's plenty of water to handle that tree. And so when the storms come, it's still going to, to prosper. It's still going to be fine. It's still going to be able to produce fruit. And notice the last line, it says that its leaf, or the second to last line, its leaf does not wither. And then in whatever he does, he prospers. Okay, so now it turns from the tree back to the blessed or the happy man. In whatever he does, he prospers. So does that include, do you think, making decisions? Right? When we have to make a decision that we're actually going to prosper. But but notice the foundation here before we can be like that strong tree. We have to do verse 2. We have to avoid the troubles in verse 1, the counsel of the wicked. We have to be um, meditating on and delighting in the law of the Lord. And when we do, we're able to make choices. And whatever we do, we have success in terms of what what God uh, expects. So we're we're... We're effectively reading and meditating on the Scriptures and then we're seeing it played out into life, into our choices, right? We, we, our decisions don't come from you know, visiting a magic eight ball or something like that, but, but by knowing what God has already said, by loving it, and then by applying it to our lives. And isn't that um, basically the, the idea of what we've been looking at the last several weeks, right? We, we seek God... Through prayer and through the Word, we're delighting in it. We're finding His answers there. Then we're seeking wisdom through counselors and maybe helping us to see some things we might have missed. And then we're making choices. And as we make those choices, we're we're actually being informed by what God has instructed us to do. It's because we are Scripture-driven people, right? We love the law. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly every time. And that doesn't mean that every single one of our... um, choices are going to turn out the way we want them to. But what we can be sure of is that we are going to be like that tree that's un, unable to be uprooted right, by a, by a storm because the law is our delight. It is deep-seated in us. And so we're ready to act when, when, the choice, when, when choices need to be made. Um, certainly, as, you know... Um, 
certainly it's not wrong to to search the scriptures when we're at a crossroads we need to make a choice but but I think the point more is, is that we're we're growing in this area so that we know how to make a choice when it's time to make a choice because we already have been meditating on it and marinating on it and so we don't have to um we don't have to to do a deep bible study uh in order to make every single choice that's that's out there i was trying to think of an example Joshua chapter 7 i think it is when um right after Jericho they were commanded well before they were commanded do not take any of the spoils for yourself all this belongs to the lord this is kind of uh an image that everything that comes in this first battle all these spoils belong to god to show who's of primary importance and of course you have one person who decides to take some of that Achan and he hides it and um then they go into the next battle against Ai and and they lose I think it was like four dozen people three or four dozen people in that battle and, and Joshua's just he is just distraught and he goes before God and he's on his knees and he says God what can we do you know what what are what is the next step that's supposed to happen what do you want and God says get up off your knees and get rid of the sin that's in the camp right in other words you should already know what to do, Joshua. The fact that this happened is because you clearly disobeyed me. So figure out who's sinning in the camp and get, get rid of it. It's not that Joshua shouldn't have sought guidance in that situation, but God was saying, you know, there are some choices that, that we simply need to get up and do, right? We don't need to pray about whether or not we should commit immorality, Right? I mean, should we pray about that? No. We already know what God says on that. Well, that's kind of a, a far out there example. But, but as you know the Scriptures more, right, you, you start to know what kind of choices that need to be made. Now, certainly keep, keep searching God. Don't, don't hear me say, stop praying. But, but as you start to know the Scriptures more, you're able to make choices um, that are in keeping with what the Word of God teaches us. Um, all right so avoid the ungodly don't take pleasure in their counsel don't don't uh, don't make choices based on their counsel instead meditate on the scripture love the scriptures first of all then meditate on them and then as you do you will have strength you will have um, you'll be like that tree that's planted by the water so that whatever you do you will prosper, and and that prosperity again is not a um, like what's being taught in these prosperity gospel churches that you're going to have great health and great success. You'll actually have may have bad health, and and you may have you know all your finances taken away from you. But um, but what we're talking about as far as verse three, the prosperity here is talking about spiritual success, spiritual prosperity, right? In the eyes of God, doing what God wants. All right, any questions on that? All right, verse 4. The wicked are not so. So, are not so what? What do you think that's talking about? Okay, maybe a little bit later in the passage than that. That's certainly true. They're not like a tree, exactly. So what have we been talking about in verse 3? Well, we're talking about someone who is 
happy, who's planted, who's strong, who cannot be swayed by the, the small storms in life. That's the way the wicked are not, right? They can be swayed by a strong wind. They, they are not successful in whatever they do, right, in terms of, of, of God's perspective. And the reason why is, as Jonathan mentioned, they, they don't delight in the law of the Lord. They don't meditate on the word day and night. Instead, they do verse 1, right? They, they, they stand or they walk and they stand and they sit in the course of the fallen wor- world and they meditate on those invented idols and imaginations and they end up being galvanized in their sin. Actually, this is what I know I want to do and what I need to do and they do it. And the fruit of that is found in verse 4. And here we see a contrast between a strong tree that cannot be moved and this chaff that can easily be blown by a small child, right? Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. So they're the opposite of the tree. They're, opposite, they're the opposite of the picture of strength. They're the picture of weakness. Chaff is this leftover dead material after a person will harvest the wheat. And so farmers in the ancient Near East would, would throw their harvest up into the air. They would gather into a large pile and they would throw it up into the air. And then as long as there was any kind of wind, it would blow the chaff away because it was so light. And then the, the grain would fall back down to the earth and they would, it would be preserved and the chaff would be gone. And so here's the imagery, right? Chaff is light, weightless, worthless, driven away by the wind. And that's how the wicked is described. That's how a person who does not delight in the law of the Lord. Can you think of anything that's of, of um, less consequence than, than chaff? Right? Something that can just a little tiny breeze can blow it away. And that's the person who is without the law of the Lord. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given himself wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the tasks of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. So the wicked person, he, he gives himself to doing all these things and actually God's saying in his work, he's actually providing for people who actually love God. This is one of the ways that God provides for his people. And, and what he's saying is that they think that they're accomplishing much and in the end they're not doing anything good in God's sight. So you have this contrast in verses 1 and 4 uh, or verses 1 and 4 and verses 2 and 3. Verses 1 and 4, the person... Uh, walks, stands, and sits in the, the, the arena of the fallen world. And as a result, he's like chaff that the wind drives away. His life is of no consequence. It, it has no value apart from God. And yet you have this other person who does not walk in that way. And instead, he delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it. And as a result, he's like this strong tree that's planted by the river of the water that no one can unseat. So, we, I guess we could summarize by saying that the wicked spend time with the wicked and become wicked. The righteous spend time in God's Word and become like God. All right, they become 
like God. Now, the application of this is don't be a fool. Don't surround yourself with, with um, foolish counselors. Don't surround yourself with foolish people. Now, I'm not saying don't remove yourself from the world because if you had to remove yourself from all foolish people, you'd have to remove yourself from the world. But, but what I am saying is that make sure that, that your choices are not being driven by the, the foolish people around you. And sometimes we can go to one extreme and say, well, I'm not going to have any foolish people around me. I'm only going to live around Christians. Obviously, that would be in violation of our responsibility to reach them. Right? Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost, and I think we need to follow that pattern by making disciples of all nations. We're going to make disciples. We've got to actually be with them. Jesus was a friend of sinners right, and tax collectors, and so he actually did spend time with, with people who were fools. But he didn't allow that to be his driving force when he had to make a choice. right? And so that's, that's, the, um, that's the application, I guess, from these first four verses. All right, any questions before we move to the final two verses and wrap this up? All right, verses 5 and 6. Here we see the psalmist turn to consider the eternal implications of these actions of the righteous and these actions of the wicked in verses 1 through 4. So here's what happens, here's what they delight in, here's what they're like, and now what happens to them. And, and this is really what's most important. This is... This is what um, distinguishes a person who is on his way to an eternal happiness with God and someone who's on his way to an eternal destruction apart from God. And so you see in this text the word judgment, verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So here is what is true about every single human being. All of us will stand before God in judgment. We will have to give an account for our lives. And so in the Old Testament, keep in mind the psalmist didn't know as much as we know about judgment and how there are actually two separate judgments and they didn't understand how Jesus was actually going to be the one reigning as the judge and so on. We have a lot more information than they do because we're on this side of of the, fin- the completion of the New Testament. But what they did know is that the judgment was a time which would separate the good from the evil, that it would be a time in which the evil would be punished forever in an eternal hell. And so really this is what, um, this is, what is the most important decision in our lives. Like how do we live our lives that's going to keep us free from an eternal judgment? In other words, what, what is it that we need to have our confidence in? The most important decisions don't have to do with uh, the most important decision is not who will marry or where we'll work or where we'll live. The most important decision is, is what can we do to keep us from that awful day of judgment when, we're, uh, when, when we would be condemned to hell forever? What can we do to avoid that? And what the text says is that the wicked will not stand. That word stand is the same word used in verse 1. Right? They stood in the way of sin. They, they actually took some kind of a pleasure in it and allowed that to affect their lives. But on the judgment day, they will not be able to stand. God will cause them to perish eternally. So the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. 
these are the assembly of the righteous are those who believe in that final word of God. That, that we are going to be standing there on Judgment Day and we will be able to stand, not by virtue of anything that we have done, but according to God's mercy that He saved us. And it will be all because of His grace. But we will be there on Judgment Day. And, and all the excuses will come up from the wicked saying why they couldn't do it. And one of, the, one of the evidences that they could have done it, they could have obeyed, is the people standing here. Right? All of these people uh, had the choice to serve me or to turn away. And you went into your sin. You enjoyed your sin. God knows God knows the way of the righteous. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God knows our way. That is, He has this intimate knowledge of every detail of our life. And so we're seeing here the, the affirmation of the goodness of God in shepherding us, that He knows and watches all of our way, our, our ways. It's not as if He's some distant God who, you know, kind of creates the world and then just kind of stays back there and says, just, you know, good luck with life. He's, he's intimately involved in our life. He cares about all the details of, of our life. He's turning our hearts to direct us to the right path and he is there he is care he cares and he's he's there in the ins and outs of lives of our lives he's he's there when life seems confusing and when we are having a hard time finding our way god is there <clears throat> watching over us right and and the way that he watches over us is he's actually guiding us into righteousness and that's what Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 say, right, that, that God causes all things to work together, not for everybody, but for good. Uh, he works all things together for good, not for everybody, but for those who are called according to His purpose. And so it's going to turn out for our good, whether we understand it or not. And the way that it turns out for our good is that God is using every single thing in our life in order to make us more holy. That's what verse 29 says in order that we would be conformed into the image of His Son. Right? So God is guiding us. He knows our way. He cares about our way. And, um, but not the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked will perish. So let me read for you the psalm again. This is from a New English translation. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes we, we know our translation and... and um, we don't really think about the words as as easily. And, and I don't say just read other translations just for the sake of it, but sometimes it's helpful to see um, how these words can be used in a different way and still have the same meaning, um, but, it, but it actually can help shed light on, on what the text is about. So listen to this, uh, Psalm 1. How happy is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the assembly of arrogant fools. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands. He intently studies his commands day and night. He is like a tree planted by flowing streams. It yields its fruit at the proper time and its leaves never fall off. He succeeds in everything he attempts. Not so with the wicked. Instead, they are like wind-driven chaff. For this reason, the wicked cannot withstand the judgment, nor can sinners join the assembly of the godly. Certainly the Lord rewards the behavior of the godly, but the behavior of the wicked is self-destructive. 
So that's really what we've been looking at today, right? That, that, that there is a stark difference between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the wise and the fool, right? There's a stark difference in how they think, how they act, what they do with their lives, and then um, what kind of strength they have, and then also in how they will be able to stand in judgment or, or fall. So, so this class is about making wise application of the Word of God. And, and what we're saying is, what I'm saying is that, that the Scriptures have everything that we need. Turn to Second Peter because I, I often quote this text, but I just want to show you it from the Scriptures so that you know um, that I'm not misquoting it or sometimes it just offers better value, validation because it's not important as much what I say as it is what the Scriptures say, right? That's ultimately what we are called to believe, not the pastor's word. Um, my word is only as good as, as it reflects properly on the Scriptures. And so that's why we come with, with Bibles to church. That's why we, we study the Scriptures daily to see if what I am saying or any other person says is true, right? Just like the Bereans in Acts 17. Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our Lord, uh, and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And then he goes on to say, add to these things uh, and increase in your spiritual positions. But, but verse 3 is the one that I often quote and, and want us to see there that God has granted us through his power everything that we need for life and godliness. So how is it that we can know that we can pursue a life of godliness? How is it that we can make wise choices? Well, God has granted us everything that we need for that. And, and the way that he does that is, notice the second part of verse 3, through the true knowledge of him who called us. So it's through knowing God that we can actually live a life of godliness, a life that actually pleases God. And then I think further proof that he's talking about the word is found in verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So by his word he has granted these promises. So it's through these promises that we come to know God, who He is, what He expects, what we ought to be delighting in, and then that helps us make these choices, do you see? So, um, the Bible is enough. The Bible is more than enough to guide us through every situation of life, and we simply need to, to listen to it. And I would commend to you that passage on the back of your handout, Colossians 2, 1-10, and... It, I think it reiterates what we've been looking at in Psalm 1, that, that the knowledge of God's mystery is revealed to us through the Word and the, the process of spiritual growth happens as we submit ourselves to the Word of God and then um, obviously dependently pray to God and, and, um, and then make choices. All right. Next time we start a 12-week study on how to study the Bible and we'll take the first two classes to look at how we got our Bible. Um, 
And then, uh, in other words, how, how it came from the Holy Spirit to the apostles and the other writers um, to the written form in Greek and Hebrew and then and Aramaic, or, um, yeah, Aramaic and then finally to us in, in, our, in our language. And then the, the next four weeks we'll talk about Bible interpretation. How is it that we properly interpret the Scriptures? And then the final six weeks we'll look at how to find a theme of the text. And we'll break that up into three main parts. Um, observation, dissection, and application. All right, any questions on Psalm 1? All right, thank you for your attention. Let's pray and we'll um, be dismissed. Father, we're thankful that um, that you have provided a way for us to prosper spiritually and to be happy in life, that we don't have to go about um, feeling like... Um, slaves and, and aliens and and having to to um, to just drudge our way through life in a way that, that we wouldn't want but but our desires can actually be enhanced and and be pleasurable when they are in keeping with your desires and so Lord would you give us genuine happiness as we seek your word and seek to obey it and to to um, to make choices in keeping with it. Lord, we want to submit ourselves to you in that way, and so help us to think of specific ways in which we can do that, even in the decisions that we have to make today and this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.